I wonder, I want to begin with a question as we come to look into God's Word together. Who here, when you're planning to go out for a meal, reads the reviews before you go? Yeah, we've got a few people that do that. And why do you think we do that? Why do we check before we go? What's that? That's a fair one, yeah? Yeah, Malcolm, what was yours? Just in case it's rubbish. Yeah, we, we want to check the testimony of others to actually see if this place is up to scratch. So we go online and we, we want to have a little look around. And I'm sure we do the same if we're looking to buy a new car. We, we go online and we read reviews of whether the car is any good or not. Yeah? yeah? Some people are looking like you can't relate to that one, but trust me, when the time comes, you will want to check when you see how much that thing's going to cost you per month. We do it with so many parts of our life because as we listen to what others are saying, it informs our decision on the value of a chef, a car, or whatever it is we happen to be exploring and looking to make a decision on at that point in our lives. What about Jesus? How great are we at listening to the testimony of Scripture about who Jesus is and the power that he has and the power actually that he uses to bless our lives and to lead us forward in his plans and purposes for our life. Are we as skilled at listening to those voices as we might be at listening to other voices? The truth is, some of us this morning, we might be saying that Jesus Christ is the one that we call our Lord and Savior. We recognize and accept that Jesus, in love for you and in love for me, would go to that cross so that he could take our sins, all the stuff that we have done wrong, all the stuff that separates us from God, he would take all of that from us and he would take it upon himself on that cross and it would die with him. And when he rose again, he would put his new life upon us and God himself would look on us, look on you and look on me and see not our mistakes and our flaws and our struggles and our difficulties, but the very righteousness of his son on us. That's what we talk about when we see, say that Jesus is Savior. But do we actually live that way day by day? Do we live with the hope and the joy and the freedom and the victory that God intends us to have through His Son? Or do we live burdened and looking at our struggles and our defeats and still with a woe is me attitude because the truth is Jesus is maybe our Savior but He's not yet our liberator? Or do we say the words, Jesus is Lord, but with a little exclamation mark, you know, like you get the small print. And then at the bottom it reads, but only when it suits me, only when it agrees with me, only when his views don't challenge mine. The truth is, if Jesus agrees with everything that you say and think and believe, then I am absolutely certain that you are wrong. Because none of us is perfect and infallible. Jesus is. There's always going to be areas where Jesus is forcing us to 
widen our horizons. So I called this morning's sermon a plagiarized phrase, which is faith seeking understanding, which is actually a book from a chap called Daniel Migliori, um, one of the books that we had to read at college. But I think that phrase summarizes actually how we should perceive our faith. Our faith is something that's to seek understanding, to understand who God is and what his relevance is for our lives, what the stuff that we say actually means in practice. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. But then we don't live that way Monday to Saturday. There can be that disconnect. And actually, we see that disconnect in these verses. We see in these verses an abundance of doubts, not just from the Pharisees, but from the disciples themselves. Why is it that Scripture can be so honest about doubt, but in evangelical churches, we often act as if it's never there? Because there's a dishonesty when we do that because the scriptural perspective of faith is that there is such a thing as doubt. And when faced and confessed, they can become faith. Masking such things doesn't matter. So I'd like you to turn with me to Mark 8 and we're going to read this morning from verse 11 to 26. Verses which see the continued journey of the disciples to the epitome which we will look at next time, which is when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. We see in these verses three different sections of Jesus' ministry and his engagement with the Pharisees and the disciples and also the healing of the blind man, the blind man at Bethsaida. So please, we'll begin at verse 11 of, of Mark chapter 8 and it says this, The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaving of the Pharisees and the leaving of Herod. And they began discussing with one another about the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, says to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you do not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And he says to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he says to him, seven. And Jesus says to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some brought to him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and says, I see men. They look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. You see, free aspects of scripture with different responses to Jesus and it's only in the most unlikely place are we actually seeing people demonstrate 
any kind of understanding as to who he is and display the kind of faith that that asks for. The first, aspect, the first part of these verses sees the Pharisees seeking a sign, seeking some sort of evidence from Jesus that he is the Messiah. You can ask the question perhaps, how close were they to the events that have just taken place? Jesus has just fed the 4,000 people. We've seen Jesus heal deaf men. We've seen Jesus um, remove the demon from this psychophenian woman's daughter. We've seen Jesus challenge and do remarkable things. And no doubt the disciples had been around when some of these ministries and miracles took place because they tended to have the habit of following Jesus around a bit. So here they are once again, and, and the question might then seem a bit strange. Why are they seeking a sign when they've seen so many miracles? But the language actually tells us what it is they're looking for because they're not actually looking for yet another miracle. What they're looking for, and it tells us this in the verses, they're seeking a sign from heaven to test Jesus, it says. They're seeking a sign from heaven. In other words, what they're looking for is something from God Almighty himself that would put beyond any doubt or reason that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That's what they're essentially asking for at this point. And Jesus sighs and he's anguished in his spirit. And he is not willing to do that. They're not even, these Pharisees are not even willing to consider a faith position when it comes to to Jesus. And it's interesting because that's still a perspective that we can encounter today as well. Give me the evidence. Prove it. Prove beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord. Prove beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is Savior. Give me the evidence. Prove me wrong. It's an interesting perspective, but the truth is, faith isn't about Facts. It's about faith. There are facts to back it up, of course. But when Jesus is asked here, could he have done this? Yes. But he isn't interested in doing this. What Jesus does actually is he refuses and he doesn't just say no. He uses that phrase, I tell you the truth. And when Jesus is using that phrase, he's generally speaking in, with authority and with finality. This is the phrase he uses when he's trying to teach the disciples to pick up key points and he uses that phrase here. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He's using strong terms to reject this. And perhaps he knows what's coming because he is also soon going to warn the disciples about some of the perspectives of the Pharisees as well. Jesus knows that faith is faith. He knows that faith is trust. He knows there is hope. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, that very well-known verse, it tells us now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. In the world biblical commentary, it says of this encounter, on one hand to force evidence upon one would make a faith response by its very nature impossible. On the other hand, the unbeliever, despite evidence, will always find ground for unbelief. 
Jesus isn't willing to engage on those terms, but remains in that place that he's looking for, as God consistently does, a hope, a faith, a trust, a conviction from the people. The truth is, and this is what Augustine says, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Seek not to understand so that you may believe, but believe so that you might understand. Faith is, sorry, understanding is the reward of faith is what he's arguing here. And Jesus is refusing to engage in their grounds, to take away the element of faith and to bring it into the realms of fact. Faith is what he's looking for here. Faith in Jesus, seeing in him the power and hope and presence of God Almighty. So Jesus is challenging um, and pushing back on what the Pharisees are saying, but very soon he will be talking to the disciples and saying to them, beware of the leaving of the Pharisees. This warning comes to the disciples as Jesus is listening and these, and these events are unfolding. Jesus will call out two um, of the cultural movers of those days, you could say, the Pharisees and the leaving of Herod. Beware of them, he says. Beware of their perspectives because ultimately these will not inspire faith in Christ. And it's ironic actually that Jesus does this because a core aspect of these verses is the fact that also the disciples will ultimately not show the right kind of faith in Christ. And I think there's a gentle challenge for us too. We live in a rationalistic age. We like evidence for everything. We like are rational behind the decisions that we make. The truth is that we can reduce Jesus in response to that. The truth is we can make the mistake of the Pharisees and try to make everything fat and everything absolute. And there's many examples of that trying to happen in our faith. This is what you must do. This is what you must not do. This is the systematic box certain theology of who Jesus is, who God is, about sin and creation and everything else. And this is what you do not waver from. There are many Christian churches that we don't have the Bible as an authority in one hand and have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology not far below it in the other hand. Trying to make as much fact as possible in regard to our faith. There are things, of course, that we can be certain about. We've got to be cautious and allow Jesus to continue to widen our horizon and the truth of who he is and the wonder of that revelation of God that he would be incarnate in Jesus in this world. We can allow Jesus to widen our horizons by sharing our life with him, by sharing our hopes and our dreams and our experiences with him and allowing the truth of our faith to become meaningful in the experiences that we have. Faith seeks understanding. That's what it does. Faith isn't set up to be the scientific fact. It's a conviction, a hope, a trust in the goodness of our God. The 
danger is if we make it hard and fact and if we think we've got it all sussed out, we're going to find it very difficult for Jesus to enter in to our experiences and widen our horizons. We must allow our faith to inspire us to seek God, to learn from Him, to take us to that place of wonder when we encounter Him and are left in awe about who He is and what He is doing. For the Pharisees here, what you see is faith, it's a, sorry, a lack of faith speaking fact. With the disciples, what we see is perhaps fellowship missing understanding. Because that seems to be the problem here because when you look at the, 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 the early verses of what's going on, they'd forgotten to bring bread with them, it says in verse 14. And they only had one loaf of them in the boat. I'm sorry, but th this verse all, almost reads to me like one of those comedy skits that you would find on television. Jesus is just hours, minutes, it doesn't say, ago, turned seven loaves into that which could feed 4,000 people. And they get on the boat and they're arguing about the fact they've only got one loaf. You talk about missing the obvious. He just made seven loaves feed 4,000 people. Now, I don't care how skilled a sandwich maker any of us is. None of us can do that. It doesn't matter how much filling you stick in it. It doesn't matter how much of those abominations such as sweet corn you happen to stick in it. You're not going to be able to feed a fraction of that. If you could feed 1% of that, I would be very impressed with seven loaves. That would be 40 people. 4,000 people Jesus has just fed with seven loaves by blessing it and seeing it multiply over and over and over so that they are all not just eating something, but satisfied. Now again, I don't know about yourselves, but for a sandwich to satisfy me, it has to be a pretty big sandwich. I don't want any of your piddly little triangles. Give me a baguette. But they were all, they all ate and were satisfied. And yet, here they are, moments later on a boat arguing about the fact that they've only got one loaf of bread. How? How could they go from such a miraculous event to this? Sitting, doubting, arguing because they lack bread. It does seem a bit like a comedy sketch because here you see they're missing the Jesus that's before them. They're stressing about, in this context, the most absurd thing that they possibly can. If there's one thing that Jesus has just showed them, he could take a loaf and definitely feed and sustain them on any journey that they happen to go on. And yet this is what they argue about at this point. This is what they're debating and discussing among themselves. And even when Jesus turns to them and says, what shall be where of the leavings of the Pharisees and the leaving of Herod? They start discussing more about the bread. They focus further in on that. And Jesus eventually has to say to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You can almost hear the perplexion of Jesus as he asks these words to them. Having eyes do you not yet see and having ears do you not yet hear? Do you not remember? And he broke the five loaves and fed the five thousand. There was twelve baskets spare. When he broke the seven for the four thousand, there was seven spare. And Jesus asked them, do you not yet understand? Why is their faith and fellowship with him not leading to that place of understanding? They're missing the Jesus that's before them. This one who, when Paul writes in Ephesians 3.20, this God who's able to do above and beyond, far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. Yet there they sit stressing. Beware of the leaving, Jesus says, that lack of faith. And yet here they show it. And our rationalistic, enlightenment era mentality, I wonder how often it is we can relate to that same perspective of the disciples. How often it is that we reduce Jesus away from his power and that wonder-working, miraculous power that it says in Ephesians works through us. The one who did an act a couple of thousand years ago that brings us joy and sits in heaven and very occasionally might happen to ask us to do the odd thing. This Jesus This Jesus that we see in Scripture is one that widens our horizons and constantly calls us to that place where our faith seeks that greater understanding. How often do I stress about the absurd things in comparison to the power of God? I asked myself that question and my answer was a lot. And all the time. And why? Why is it that they draw to pray about some of the things that plague our hearts is later than trying to fix it all ourselves or just sitting worrying about it? Let's let our faith reach out to God so that we can experience His goodness and His and find that increased understanding, that testimony as to who he is. Because before us too is this Christ. His abundant promises fill this book. Fill it. And not just promises, testimony of his goodness. The Psalms are filled with testimony of the faithfulness and goodness of God. The Gospels the letters, the, all of it speaks and points us and, test, and is testimony to the goodness of this God. Yet if we stand here honest this morning, so often we find ourselves worrying about life. Worrying even about our salvation. I did this wrong and I did that wrong. And five years ago I did that wrong too. And not actually trusting and finding the joy and hope that we have in this God who would come into this world to 
to make us his own. Because this God, this God that's revealed in Scripture, and this God who is your God, as we grow to understand him, he's a God who promises us rest. He's a God who promises us joy. He's a God who promises us hope, peace, and certain victory, because he has already won. My encouragement to us this morning, if you remember nothing else, remember this, that let us allow our faith to prompt us to seek understanding, to reach out to God in the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And to be less like the disciples who stressed, in their case, anything I think more absurd than what we might be because they've just seen Jesus do the greatest miracle with bread itself. And this is the honesty of Scripture. Scripture doesn't paint over our journey of faith like it's all simple and easy and straightforward and we never have doubts and stresses about the most ridiculous things, that we never waver about our regard and belief in the power of God. It shows us that the very people who saw Jesus do the most remarkable things have those very doubts. And it shows us a Jesus who perseveres with them, who, yes, is very perplexed, but guides them ministers to them, uses them, and he would take those people and change the world with them, with, with his power. If Jesus does that with them, he does that with us. We can bring who we are. We can bring our struggles, our doubts, our fears before our God and know that he works with us, not against us. We can increase our understanding and his goodness, his faithfulness, and his presence in our life. So faith, experience, seeks understanding. Faith, faith. John Murray says, faith is a knowledge that, that passes into conviction. And it's a conviction that passes into confidence. And there's a lot of truth in that. The disciples here aren't making those leaps for whatever the reason might be. They have faith, we know that. And these are the verses, ironically, which preclude the greatest confession there is when Peter will confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But in this part, they can't seem to make those leaps. The faith they have experienced, but the understanding is lacking because they're allowing the, the, the mentalities of the perspectives around them to inform their perspective of who Jesus is. Let us listen to each other. Let us listen to the voices of history and the voices of Scripture to remember who Jesus is. That kind of understanding allows us, to, enables us to have faith to call Jesus into the experiences of our lives and to see his faithfulness and power at work. Leads us to understanding that God is faithful, that he is kind, that he is holy, that he is powerful. And that list will go on and on as we live with God through our lives. But do we call God, do we call Jesus into those experiences? How late in our checklist of here's a problem and this is my solutions, how low down is prayer in that list? Are we content ultimately to leave it at I believe 
but I'll get on with the rest myself. Because as we do so, we deprive ourselves of almost all the things that God intends to offer us here and now. So finally and briefly, this element of seeing clearly is the final um, miracle that we see in these verses as Jesus encounters this blind man. It's a remarkable miracle in its own sense. And it's interesting that it's the people here that show the faith and understanding in who Jesus might be as they bring this man to Jesus and beg Jesus to touch this man. They remember, and from the stories or whatever it might be, that this Jesus is now before them as one with whom they can bring the vulnerable and the troubled and they can ask Jesus. And they believe that they will see in Jesus the power to make a difference in this, one, this man's life. It niggled with me the question, how quickly do we pray for those that we see who are troubled? That doesn't mean we don't act to help them, by the way. Do we pray for them and ask that this God who we see in Jesus would reach down into their lives too? The fact for the, what we have in these verses is a, is a partial healing is very interesting because what's generally understood now from this story is that what we're seeing here is not merely just a miracle, but a miracle which takes the form of a parable in regard to the understanding of the disciples. Because they're the ones who, despite seeing, are actually struggling to see. Continuing to argue over bread when they've just saw Jesus multiplying it. The power of God as a hope in their lives is still lacking. What you see when Jesus works with this man is firstly a partial healing, it seems. Now, what, the, the, what we see taking place and how Jesus does that miracle might be something that we are thinking, I'm not so sure about that. It speaks of Jesus spitting on the eyes and things like that. But it's thought that what Jesus is trying to do is for this man who was blind and hearing was no doubt amplified and... Um, He's trying to get him away from the crowds and the noise and trying to get this man's attention as he conducts this miracle. So Jesus lays his hands on him and, and what the man sees and responds is blurry, partial. You can see people, but they're, they're a bit like trees. The partial vision is very much an element of what the disciples are experiencing. They see Jesus. But at this moment in time, they're not really seeing Jesus. And that can be true of us at times as well. Because it can be so easy to talk to the disciple. Yet, how often do we do something, see God do something utterly remarkable and then when the context changes just a little bit, we show a lack of faith and we doubt and we wonder. It seems it can be very hard to see God act in power in one area of life and then allow that experience to colour the whole of our lives. Jesus perseveres with this man as he perseveres with the disciples, as he perseveres with us in our moments of doubt and lack of clarity. And eventually, this man has clear vision 
as Jesus lays faith, as Jesus lays his hands on him once more. His restoration likely permanent. And in the sense for this parable is about the journey the disciples are on as well. This moment when we see them in the middle verses that we've explored and they are doubting, they are misunderstanding, they are arguing about the most absurd and ridiculous things. But as this, as this healing takes place, as the parable takes place, what you see following on from that is this moment of clarity, of complete vision, when Peter will confess Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Lord, as the Saviour. It's all building to that moment. This confession, this understanding, this comprehension, albeit very brief, of who Jesus is and the relevance of that for their lives and for our lives. This should be our prayer too. As we look at this, that our prayer should be, give us clarity, Lord. Give us understanding. Help us to see who you are and the troubles and the burdens and the worries and the fears that I am experiencing at this moment in time. Help me to see who you are as I look at times and hyper-focus on my own inadequacies. Help me to remember your goodness and your mercy and your transforming power. Give us clarity. Give us understanding. For as these grow, our horizons expand. Our understanding of God expands. And our ability to see him in our lives, in the ordinary and the extraordinary, continues to expand. Our God is one who has called each of us, regardless of how you comprehend him this morning, to a life of adventure, to a life of wonder, to a life of faith, seeking understanding. My question then is simple. How are we responding to that invitation this morning? Let's pray. Father, you call us to that journey, to a journey where as we have faith, where as we experience you, where as we grow in our learning and our knowledge, we come to greater understanding of your goodness, your faithfulness, your presence and your plans and your purposes. Lord, help us see clearly. Help us to see clearer who you are and your goodness towards each and every one of us. Help us to see clearly the grace of Jesus and the victory that we have in him. Help us to see clearly that Jesus is Lord and to seek fervently after your will. Lord, forgive us when we wander to those places of doubt, when we wander away from you, when we misunderstand who you are or even at times stubbornly refuse to accept your teaching over our lives. Help us, Lord, though we are often like the disciples, to, to increasingly, Lord, be clearer who you are. We thank you that you are that God of goodness, of mercy, of kindness, of care, of compassion towards us, who has called us out of sin 
to become your children, to abide in Jesus Christ and to be fruitful. Help us to have a faith that seeks understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and close our service this morning.